As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you, and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. We first meet Jonathan in 1 Samuel 13. King Saul, the first king of Israel, and Jonathan, his son, are engaged in conflict with the Philistines. And this is one of those epic battles, and the Israelites were not in a favorable circumstance. In 1 Samuel 13, 5, it says, There were 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand of the seashore, versus, guess how many Israelites? 600. The Israelites were so scared that some began hiding in cisterns and caves. But in the next chapter, Jonathan says to his armor-bearer, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And I think this verse captures who Jonathan is. He's saying, hey, yeah, I know it's this scary situation, but let's go to the outpost. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. If he wants to save, he can with an army or by just a few of us. We just might be the ones to open it all up. So let's go to this Philistine outpost and see what we can make happen. And in this situation where everyone is afraid and running away, what Jonathan does allows God to get into action. After all this, there's a battle and then God gets involved. There's an earthquake and the Philistines are routed. And what we see here is that there was one man who was willing to take a step of faith. And God was waiting over the situation to take action. He wanted to deliver. And it took Jonathan and his armor bearer to take a step of faith. So Jonathan himself is a man of valor, of skill, a man of tremendous faith. But then David comes along. And he is four years younger than Jonathan. He's the youngest of eight sons. He's a sheep herder. He has no military experience. Compare who David is with who Jonathan is. 
Jonathan is the rightful heir to the throne, next in line, proven military commander and a man of God. But David is able to do what Jonathan did not do. Goliath has been taunting the Israelite ranks day after day, week after week. No one has been able to respond. Not Jonathan and not Saul. But David hears the taunts and comes along and not only challenges Goliath, but defeats him. Like, how do you feel when someone you think is lesser than you is able to do something that you feel you ought to be able to do? Like, what do we say when you're trying to open that jar and then right after you try, your younger brother comes along and does it effortlessly? Like, I loosened it for you, right? So we try to minimize their accomplishments or we be critical about them because we feel envious of what they were able to do. And I think given how awesome Jonathan was himself, I think it would have made sense for us to see Jonathan respond in that way, like to exert his hierarchy and his authority and his position and put David down aggressively or passive aggressively. Or at the very least, he could have been like a sore sport. He could have acted sullen, distanced himself from the entire situation even. But he doesn't do that. Instead, it says that Jonathan became one in spirit with David. In 1 Samuel 18, verse 1, it says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Jonathan is not intimidated or fearful of this younger, competent, upstart David. Instead, he responds in love, and his heart goes out to David, and they become something like blood brothers. They make a covenant. Verse 3, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. So there's that word covenant. Like, what does that mean? These days, we don't really understand covenant relationships. Nowadays, relationships are often of convenience. Like, we'll just be nice to each other and we'll hang out, kind of like at the airport terminal waiting rooms. You exchange pleasantries until your flight is called. Covenant relationships are only known in the context of marriage these days. But here, it isn't unusual for two men to form a covenant relationship, to say that it's not just a matter of convenience. I will commit my honor and my life to you. They make a covenant. And then Jonathan gives him his robe, which represents his royal position. And this foreshadows what Jonathan will do later, which is to yield his throne to David. Maybe it's more than just foreshadowing. It's like literally a recognition of Jonathan that somehow as he's watching this boy slay the giant, there's a discernment that comes over Jonathan that says, there goes the Lord's anointed. And he takes off his robe and furnishes him with his armor, his weaponry, and his belt. He doesn't hold anything back from David to establish him. And in that way, Jonathan gives him the highest praise. So what can we learn from this? I think one thing we can learn from this is that humility is able to make us secure in our relationships. When we only evaluate the world through comparison, we'll inevitably feel diminished. There's always going to be someone who is smarter or funnier or prettier than us. And if that fact preoccupies us, we not only miss out on all that we've been blessed with, we will die a thousand deaths as we get older and gradually lose our physical and mental abilities. But if we stop playing comparison games in our minds, we gain the ability to be secure about what we can contribute rather than over, overly focus on what we lack or become overly anxious about someone better coming along. You know, from the standpoint of the world, it would seem like Jonathan should be intimidated by this younger potential competitor to his position. But he does not seem insecure about his accomplishments. He does not spiral downwards into self-doubt. 
Humility allows Jonathan to recognize David's awesomeness in exhibiting the same faith in God as him without it being a diminishment to his own awesomeness. So they can both be awesome together without detracting from each other. And that is pretty awesome. I think the second lesson we can learn is that humility draws you closer to people. When we focus on ways that we are better or worse than other people, we end up growing more distance from each other. Or we overly focus on our differences with each other, our different socioeconomic backgrounds, we grew up in different places, different experiences, so we can never be close. Well, Jonathan looks at David, and the scriptures say that their souls were knitted together because David so powerfully demonstrated the truth that Jonathan risked his life for, that God can deliver by few or by many, that the name of the Lord is the strength. Instead of comparing their differences, Jonathan recognized that their shared commitment to the same God made their hearts one. And that allowed Jonathan to be the kind of person who could look at someone from the opposite end of society and instead of only seeing the other, he was able to see a brother. Lastly, what we see through Jonathan is that humility enables you to be a blessing. Rather than waste time diminishing other people's accomplishments to make himself feel better, Jonathan plays this incredibly pivotal role in establishing the future spiritual and political leader of Israel, establishing the Davidic line through which would eventually come Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, whom the Gospel writer Matthew actually calls the son of David. Even though Jonathan was superior to David in many aspects, what we see is that Jonathan is the one who took the initiative to encourage David, to strengthen him, and eventually tells David that he will be king. You know, there's this sweet story in 1 Samuel where David is discouraged and on the run from King Saul, and he's barely a step ahead of the soldiers. And he's probably wondering, where is God in the midst of all of this? And what about God's promises to me? Like, how long am I going to be living this life of a fugitive? And in the midst of this, Jonathan somehow finds David and encourages him. In 1 Samuel 23, 17, he says, You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Like, I'm going to be second to you. You just go ahead of me and serve God to the fullest. Jonathan's natural position was a prince, but he steps aside to allow God's choice to step up, and he lets go of any claim to the title. What a man of humility. What a friend Jonathan was. So to summarize, some lessons that we can learn through Jonathan is that when we're humble, rather than grow more and more insecure in anxiety and self-doubt, we're able to appreciate and be secure about other people's God-given gifts, as well as our own. And rather than push people away because we see them as different or as competitors, we're able to draw closer to other people who are able to do the things that we love even better. And rather than waste time worrying about whether we're climbing the ranks, we're able to be an encouragement and blessing the others. So imagine that you're in an alternate universe where Jonathan does not humble himself, but starts to be envious of David, starts to become more hostile and more paranoid, and tries to bring David down. Like, what would happen? What would be the consequences? Well, we actually don't need to imagine too hard, because that is actually a description of what happened with Jonathan's dad, King Saul. After defeating Goliath, David fought for King Saul, and he won many battles for him to the point where the women began singing, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, how do you think that made Saul feel? This makes Saul angry and jealous because they started comparing the two of them. And Saul is unable to accept that anyone would be better than him. And so the text says he begins to eye David, 
which I think can mean multiple things, like keeping an eye on him, eyeing him out of jealousy, giving him the evil eye, and eventually Saul tries to kill him and drive him out. And this is so tragic. It's tragic because Saul loses out on so much. He loses out on an awesome son-in-law who David ends up being because Saul ends up giving his daughter to David in a twisted attempt to kill him, which is this whole other story. I'm not going to get into that. And after he drives him out, Saul loses out on an awesome general in David. He loses out on precious years and resources trying to track down and bring down one of the people who are actually most devoted to him. And he even loses out in his own family as he drives away his own son, trying to kill Jonathan himself due to his own paranoia that Jonathan was choosing sides against him. Envy eats us up, leads to anxiety, paranoia, and isolation. Like Saul, it causes us to evaluate the world and other people through a warped lens. And ironically, the more we grasp for ourselves, the more it shrinks who we are. And by the end, Saul ends up this shriveled up life with a shrunken soul. Where did this come from? I think it understandably started in some relatable places. I think it starts in Saul's focus on minor differences, eventually causing him to draw lines around his tribe. I think that's how Saul understood relationships, on a tribal and primal basis. Like, he loved his son and wanted Jonathan to be a king. He doesn't understand why Jonathan won't side with him. And there's this one conversation where he says that as long as the son of Jesse lives, Jonathan will never be king. Because David is from Jesse's tribe, and Jonathan, you should be in my tribe. And he calls Jonathan the son of a bad woman, although that's his wife. And he just does not understand why Jonathan will not link with him in the tribal bond of being father and son. Well, Jonathan, he can't go along with his father because he has a prior commitment to God and his higher purposes. He transcends his own tribe, redraws the lines to include God's tribe, which is something that Saul should have done. So Jonathan sees his father's political ruthlessness and sees that it is shameful. And Jonathan grieves because of Saul's treatment of David. It's not that Jonathan left Saul and David and joined David's tribe. He was loyal to his father too. He never left Saul even though Saul chucked spears at both David and Jonathan. He never left Saul but stayed with him, protecting him from his own sins, and they die in battle together. His loyalties both to Saul and David are shaped by his prior commitment to God. Whereas envy shrinks our world, Jonathan's humility opens him up to God's kingdom. So how do we see these tribal lines play out in our world today? Many friendships are more tribal in nature. They're based on things like common origin or common interest. Like we went to the same school, we tried out for the same teams. Country club friendships, where the wealthy say, hey, let's create this club where only the wealthy can join. And many friendships are more like mutual benefit societies, where if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And as long as you hold up your side of the bargain, I'll hold up mine. I think we see that in elementary school, where like a bunch of kids can so easily become a bunch of thugs. Well, that is not an ennobling friendship. It's just tribalism. Friendships that are only based on loyalties to each other, they can degenerate. Mafia, boy, do they look out for each other, but it causes harm and damage to other people. So Jonathan, he challenges us to have relationships that honor God. Examine your friendships. Examine your relationships. Are we furthering the purposes of of God through this relationship? Or is it a brute commitment to be on each other's side without any principle? We'll protect each other from everything, even the claims of God. No, God-honoring friendships are ones in which nothing is more important than the truth. If that relationship is the final goal without any rule, then the relationship becomes poison. 
God calls each party in each relationship to honor him above even each other. And I think Jonathan and David's was a God-honoring friendship. God was a third party in their friendship. And it started because Jonathan recognized how much David loved God. And it is such a friendship that was able to further God's purposes on earth. I want to hold up Jonathan as the highest ideal for all of us to aspire to. I challenge all of us to be a Jonathan to our friends. But when we do that, it's not like it leads to misery. Actually, it leads to joy. How Jonathan is to David mirrors how John the Baptist is before Jesus, who is called the son of David. When Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist is someone who has more followers, more seniority, was in a more superior position. All of Judea was coming to be baptized by John the Baptist, and yet what does he do? John the Baptist, he points to Jesus. He says to his his disciples, hey, you're listening to me right now, but there's someone who's coming whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And when Jesus shows up, he points to Jesus with the declaration, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But it's not like he's sad as he's talking about Jesus becoming more prominent than him. In John 3, he says the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist is saying that he's as joyful as a friend at his best friend's wedding. He is so happy for his friend. He's not trying to gain the crowd's attention. No, he's happy to just honor his friend. And he's so full of joy that this happened to his friend. And he uses that analogy to describe how he feels when Jesus arrives and tells his disciples, look, I have the joy of the friend at a best friend's wedding. The joy of John the Baptist is the same as the joy of Jonathan as he yields the throne to David. When Jonathan says to David that David will be king and Jonathan will be second, how do you think he said it? It's not like he's sad as he's talking about David becoming more prominent than him. He must add some joy to it in order to encourage David. David, when it's your time to arrive, I'll be so happy. It'll be your party, and I couldn't be happier for you. So, yeah, we have a hard time surrendering our natural rights. But we make it our role to strengthen others. Instead of always waiting for that recognition that never comes, we get to celebrate more. When our Davids enter in, what if you responded with humility, sweetness, and joy? You know, the older you get, the more people will arrive, the more parties we get to have. And that means not less joy, but more. And this is what the family of God should look like full of people, joy-filled, expansive, rather than tribal. You know, sometimes people ask, how do you get close to people? Well, we get close to people when we realize that we're on the same side, that we're fighting the same battles. If you recognize your closeness to God, you start to get close to your peers because you realize you're on the same side. They stop being threats to your ego. You start experiencing oneness because you realize we're doing this together. You get close to people. Not just by spending a lot of time with them, but when you look around and see who is fighting on the same side, who's pointing the gun in the right direction. And there's that question. Like, would you rather be the best player on the worst team or the worst player on the best team? Well, when it comes to God, above all things, I want him to be honored. And if that means I'm the worst on that team, then praise the Lord.